Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Spaghetti Fiction. I am your host Alyssa. And I'm your co-host Nate. And today we are talking about 1997's Batman and Robin. Starring George Clooney and other people that we all know and love, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger. He got top billing on that movie. I, when I first watched this movie, it took me, I didn't read anything about it. Uh, I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid. Uh, And then I was like, wait, is that supposed to be Arnold? And then I was like, it it is. Oh my God. (laughs) They had an all-star cast, man. They had my girl Alicia Silverstone, um, Vivica A. Fox. What else is Alicia Silverstone in? Alicia Silverstone, she's in one of my favorite movies from the 90s, Clueless. Um, Oh. I love her. She's great. Well... So, um, yeah, you know, we did Wonder Woman uh, the other week, and uh, that, you know, that was a new superhero movie. So I kind of felt like for fun, uh, it'd be nice to sort of wind the clock back a bit and talk about an older superhero movie. And um, this is the fourth installment in the, um, what I call the 90s Batman's movies. The first one was in 89, but the rest of them are very firmly in the 90s. So you might as, it feels like this was the 90s. Totally different time. And people had totally different expectations of what superhero movies were. This was pre-MCU. This was uh, pre-the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. So this was kind of the first serious foray into Batman. Because up until this point in time, all that anyone really knew about Batman was the 60s TV show. And I think there was a subsequent movie on that. And it it was all very campy. And people didn't take it seriously. So it was really hard to greenlight this entire series to begin with. And then I think it kind of, well, you get, by the time you get here, it's become just as campy all over again. I remember watching one of the Batman episodes with uh, Wes Anderson, right? No, Adam West, not Wes Anderson. Adam <laughs> West. <laughs> you know, TV stars Adam West. Uh, <laughs> and I watched it for my TV crit class. And it was super fun. I really liked it. And this, is, this movie was fun, too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bad in a fun way. It's not great, but it's like a live action cartoon, which I, I understand the director that was that was kind of his vision with it. Before every shot, he would tell the actors like, "Remember, people, this is a cartoon." And Chris O'Donnell, the the Robin actor, he's he noticed like a stark contrast in you know movie direction from the third installment, Batman Forever, to this edition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said that in Batman Forever, they felt like he felt like they were making a movie. And with Batman and Robin, he felt like they were just making a toy commercial. And toy executives were in on the project from, like, day one. Like, from the pre-production meetings, there were toy companies there. Well, that makes so much sense, then. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the actors felt that the, the entire approach was way too, um, quote-unquote, toyetic. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I agree with that. We can kind of break into that with some of the character designs and sequences and choices. But, like, this feels like a giant cartoon toy commercial and you can just imagine like the mcdonald's happy meal tie-ins that it spawned Mm, oh yeah for sure uh so my question before we dive in was so when was the first time that you've seen this movie uh actually just a few days ago um you've never watched it before no i had never watched it and i'm lucky enough that i happened to be in possession of um, a dvd collection of all four of the quote-unquote 90s Batman movies. 
um, which I think is a brilliant idea because no one would ever buy. I don't. Know, I don't think some some people would want would want to buy some of these movies on their own. But if you package them all together, it's like, oh, what a great deal. Yeah, I watched this movie a long time ago with my brothers. We watched a lot of we 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 watched a lot of DC content growing up. Uh, I watched Teen Titans with my brothers. Uh, we watched a lot of the Batman animated series. Um, whichever, I, I I never like watched them religiously or anything. But I whichever ones came out from like the late nineties to you know the late two thousands. I know I've seen episodes like a handful of episodes from each. The one that I remember the most was I think it was Batman Returns. If is it or the one with the penguin in it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that one more than Batman and Robin, but I just, watching this movie the entire way through, it just kind of made me feel nostalgic, and that's why I liked it so much, because it just reminded me of all of the stuff that me and my brothers would watch together when we were kids, and it was cool. I mean, it's not a good movie, but no. it's it was fun. I had a good time watching it. Well, uh, why don't we just dive right into the plot? Batman and his recently acquired partner, Robin, encounter a new foe, Mr. Freeze, who has left a string of diamond robberies in his wake. During a confrontation in the Natural History Museum, Freeze steals a large diamond and flees, solidifying Robin and Ice and leaving Batman unable to pursue him. Later, Batman and Robin learn that Freeze was originally Dr. Victor Fries, a scientist working to develop a cure for McGregor Syndrome to heal his terminally ill wife, Nora. After a lab accident, Fries was rendered unable to live at normal temperatures and forced to wear a cyrogenic suit powered by diamonds in order to survive. At a Wayne Enterprises lab in Brazil, botanist Dr. Pamela Isley works under the deranged Dr. Jason Woodrow and is experimenting with a drug called Venom. She witnesses Woodrow use the formula to turn a serial killer into a hulking monstrosity, whom he dubs Bane. When Isley threatens to expose Woodrow's experiments, he attempts to kill her by overturning a shelf of various toxins. Isley transforms into the beautiful and seductive Poison Ivy, kills Woodrow with her poisonous kiss, sets fire to the lab, and escapes with Bane. She discovers that Wayne Enterprises funded Woodrow, though said funding was eventually cut. Poison Ivy concocts a plan to use Wayne's money to fund her research and goes to Gotham City with Bane in tow. Meanwhile, Alfred Pennyworth's niece, Barbara Wilson, makes a surprise visit and is invited by Bruce to stay at Wayne Manor until she goes back to school. Wayne Enterprises presents a new telescope for the Gotham Observatory at a press conference. Eileen interrupts, proposing a project that could help the environment, but Bruce declines her offer, citing that it would kill millions of people. That night, a charity event is held by Wayne Enterprises with special guests Batman and Robin. Ivy sneaks in and uses her abilities to seduce them. Freeze crashes the party and steals another large diamond. Although he is captured by Batman and detained in Arkham Asylum, he eventually escapes with the help of Ivy. Meanwhile, Dick discovers that Barbara has participated in drag races to raise money for Alfred, who has died of McGregor Syndrome. Batman and Robin begin having relationship problems because of Ivy's seduction techniques, but Bruce eventually convinces Dick to trust him. Meanwhile, Barbara discovers the Batcave, where an AI version of Alfred reveals he has made Barbara her own suit. Barbara dons the suit and becomes Batgirl. Ivy captures Robin, Batman rescues him, and Batgirl subdues Ivy before revealing her identity to the pair. Batman, Robin, and Batgirl decide to go after Freeze together. 
By the time they find Freeze and Bane, however, Gotham is completely frozen. Batgirl and Robin are attacked by Bane, but they defeat him by stopping the flow of venom to his body. Batman defeats Freeze while Batgirl and Robin follow the city. Batman shows Freeze a recording of Ivy revealing to Batgirl that she killed Freeze's wife with the intention of framing Batman. He then finishes his research in Arkham Asylum. Batman asks Freeze for the cure he has created for the first stage of McGregor Syndrome to administer to Alfred, and Freeze atones for his crimes by giving him the medicine he had developed. Ivy is imprisoned in Arkham Asylum with a vengeful Freeze as her cellmate. Alfred is cured, and everyone agrees to let Barbara stay at Wayne Manor and fight crime with them. Okay, so now that you have a better understanding of um, pretty much what happens throughout this movie, um, let's start kind of dissecting it piece by piece. This mm -hmm. plot doesn't make sense. No. No? No, no, okay, it does make sense, but it's stupid, but it's fun. So, <laughs> like, it, it kind of, I would say it kind of feels like the imagination of a kid, you know? Like,. This guy has to steal diamonds to power his suit. That sounds like an idea a kid came up with. I mean, I, I'm sure it's canon in all kinds of iterations of Batman, but for some reason, the execution behind this, the deliberately cartoonish execution felt, and I don't mean it's in a bad way, but it's like it's a complete tone shift from previous installments. It's, it's like all the campiness of the 60s Batman, but with the production value of, you know, the big movie Warner Brothers production value. So it's, it's a strange... Um, clash of what you're seeing and what is being told to you. Well, as soon as it started, I had just decided I'm not going to write anything about the plot because I, I knew what I was going into and I just didn't really care. I just was there for the ride. I was having a good time. Yeah. It was, it was fun. I mean, I think with movies like this, like you don't really have to think about the plot too much. Uh, just it's just more fun just to watch it un unravel and see what's going on. Now, if it made completely like no fucking sense whatsoever, then yeah, I mean you should probably say something. But I think it was a pretty decent plot outline, I guess. Um, I was just more interested in Mister Freeze and uh, <laughs> Poison Ivy. I just was having fun watching them. They were oh, they were fun. <laughs> I think that's the best part about Batman movies are the villains. It's like nobody ever really cares that much about, like obviously Batman's going to be there in every Batman movie you watch, no matter which version or reboot or iteration. It's like there's always a Batman, there's always a Batcave and a Batmobile and an Alfred, a, an Arkham Asylum. And it's just a matter of like, okay, but who are the villains? That's the fun part. You know, people remember The Dark Knight because of Heath Ledger's Joker. And people remember the first Batman movie in 89 because of uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker. Yeah, um, I if, if somebody, like, if someone says The Dark Knight to me, the first thing I think of is Heath Ledger's Joker. I don't think about Christian Bale. I don't care. You know, right? I, like, I agree. I think the it's fun to watch the, the villains more than it is to watch Batman because we all know what Batman's going to do, right? So Yeah. <laughs> He's going to show up and be like, I'm Batman, and... He's going to punch him and fling him around on his grappling hook. 
are there established rules within this plot? Um, I think so. Think? <laughs> I mean, there, there's this, there, there are rules about like, okay, Mr. Freeze needs diamonds to power his suit. I, 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 I can buy that. And Poison Ivy gets her powers from this venom, which or, or some amalgamation of chemicals that are dumped on her. I don't know if it's the same thing that powers Bane. Yeah, and then there's all the, there's kind of rules about like um, Poison Ivy's seduct, seduction dust or her oh, pheromone yeah, dust. One, the pheromone dust doesn't work. Whatever, whatever you want to call that. I guess you would say pheromone dust, right? Because that's yeah, what I Mr. Freeze called it. Something or just something said, like oh, that. I smell pheromones. And it didn't work on him because he didn't have his heart was cold. It's because he's faithful. He's faithful to his frozen wife. Definition fridged wife. Yeah, and and I'd say that the the movie sticks to these rules. I get a little confused about like some of the, the the pheromone gags here, where it's like, okay, Batman and Robin are fighting with each other because Poison Ivy blew dust on both of them, so they're both kind of infatuated with her. But also, this is never really explored on with Batman anymore. That was my my thought too. I was like, well, why even have them fight with one another if you're not even going to delve into that storyline even more? Like it was just kind of there for convenience. Like they had to create some sort then, of conflict between the two. There has to be some moment in uh you know, like between the second and third act where the the pair break up. They have a fallout of some sort and then they come back together for the the finale. And I think that's kind of what drove that was like they have some sort of a falling out disagreement. It's partially over Ivy and it's partially over like, oh, you don't trust me, Batman. You won't let me. You're always cutting off the motor on my motorcycle when you think I'm in trouble. You don't you don't let me do things my way. And I think that was a, um, a better way to create conflict, the, the whole issue of trust between them. And I wish they had kind of um, explored that a bit more because that, I think, is good conflict. I would argue that I don't really think we needed any conflict between them at all. I mean, they didn't, if they did it correctly, then maybe it would have made more sense. But I agree. I think they should have focused more on the dynamic between Batman and Robin and Batman not trusting him and shit. Because isn't that a running theme with a lot of these movies and shows and stuff is that he doesn't think that Robin's ready? Yeah, like he's still a kid or something, even though I'm sure, like, in most of these movies, he's a fucking adult. <laughs> <laughs> well, always at least a young adult. It's like it's like a in SpongeBob <laughs> with a Barnacle Boy. Oh yeah, I mean that's exactly what they're parodying, Mermaid Man. Oh and yeah, Barnacle it's Boy. just that whole episode where uh, Barnacle Boy ends up hanging out with like the bad guys because he was tired of Mermaid Man treating him like a child, even though he was still in his fucking. He was only in his seventies. <laughs> <laughs> See, that would have been a more interesting plot point. Like, what if Robin straight up left Batman, joined the villains, and yeah, what if he did that yeah. instead? Instead of just having See, some mild cattiness. SpongeBob got it right. Okay, they did a better job of creating conflict than Batman and Robin. <laughs> it's like the actual cartoon gets it better than the movie trying to be a cartoon. Yeah, my also another thing I wish that they would have expanded a little bit more on was Mister Freeze and his motivations to save his wife. I want to know more about that. I kind of feel bad for him. Like I think he. Just wants to save his wife, man. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's like I think that. Sad. 
It's a perfectly valid motive, motivation. And ultimately, like it's exp- it's explored upon more like that what he's doing is research to cure a disease that other people can get too. So his research is ultimately useful to the world. And like by the end of the movie, Alfred. yeah, he shares the medicine with 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 Batman so that he can give it to Alfred. So it's like, I think that's kind of put there as a redemption arc for him. That is a good example of like somebody that can be a complete and total asshole, but still has some sort of good left in them where their the, their motivations then what they're doing might be bad but their motivations is for something good in the end and i think that's an interesting theme to think about you know i mean let's be let's be realistic to him is that he needs that cold suit and to power that cold suit he he needs diamonds for some reason or he'll die he needs to keep his body mm-hmm. like really cold all the time it's like he needs accommodations, and I guess that just requires him to heist museums to get their giant prop diamonds. Yeah, I mean, but not everybody can afford diamonds, so I can't get too mad at him. <laughs> I understand. Like, every other Batman villain who steals jewels kind of just does it because they want the jewels because they're greedy. But he actually has, like, life-sustaining motivations. And that's why I liked him so much. And, and why I kind of wish I could have taken him a little more seriously. Like, all of his lines are just ice puns, and they're not even good ones. That's what I was going to say later on. Yeah, they're not good at all. I mean, I laughed a few times, but more because I was just like, what? Then I thought it was genuinely funny. <laughs> It's more out of a sense of, like, who greenlit this? Who watched this? Or who reviewed the script and thought, yeah, this is great. They're like, oh, Let's Arnold run with Schwarzenegger, this. he was in that one movie pretending to be the little brother. He would be perfect in this. And that god-awful movie, Jingle All the Way. Oh. That's that's another one that's that's another one he's in that's bad because it's fun. This character, this movie was pretty on par for Arnold at the time. When he tries to break out of his action movie um, lead model, because that's what he really does best, or where he's like the lead man in an action movie. Well, he made like, a damn good Terminator. <laughs> oh yeah, Terminator, True Lies, uh, Total Recall, even Kindergarten Cop is like. I was like, I was impressed by that. There was a lot more cop than kindergarten, and he was good in it. But sometimes when he tries to do more com- comedy-driven roles, it, it all depends on the script that gets handed to him. I always feel like he tries his hardest to work with what he's got, but they didn't really give him much to work with in this movie. Cut down on the ice puns, maybe, you know? All the puns. I mean, like, I feel like 80% of the dialogue in this entire movie is just quips. I will say this, though, with these quips, uh, it makes more sense in this movie than it did in the Wonder Woman 84. So, if anything... You give yeah. it a pass? I'll give it a <laughs> on pass on that regard. it's supposed to be, like, it's supposed to be a campy, fun movie, and sure, the puns get to a point where it's really annoying, and you're just like, oh my god, when is it gonna end? But I'd rather it be like this than... The Wonder Woman 84 situation where it just is kind of out of nowhere and makes no sense. But, so if, yeah. you're gonna, if you're going to be bad, at least be bad in a fun way. And that's what this movie does pretty well. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's move on to our characters here. So um, we've got George Clooney as Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And um, you know, he was this was his first attempt to play this role. Um, previously in Batman Forever, it was Val Kilmer who had replaced Michael Keaton, who was in the first two movies. Um 
So Batman got shifted around a bit throughout the series. The only characters really who stayed consistently through all four movies were uh, Alfred and Commissioner Gordon. Those are the those actors are the common players all throughout. That's how you that's how you know like this is supposed to be the same series. I couldn't take him seriously as Batman because George Clooney just has a very distinctive voice and I had recently watched some of the like the first two Oceans movies. And that's all I could think of was Danny Ocean and not Batman. <laughs> yeah, that or like Spy Kids 3. And he didn't even like do the, hey, I'm Batman. He was just like talking like regular. It would have made more sense if he was like wheezing or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, whatever that word is. I, I'm, I don't know. I'm Batman. Yeah, that. Like that, right? Do you think he did a good job as Batman, in your opinion, since you were watching the other uh, three movies? Um, I think he's okay. You know, like, I I honestly don't feel like I have a favorite Batman throughout any of these, because as we were saying earlier, Batman's honestly kind of just the secondary presence in, in, in all of his movies. It's all about the rogues gallery. It's all about mm-hmm. the villains. So it's like, I, like yeah, Michael Keaton, he's, he does just fine as Batman, despite all the controversy about his casting announcement. Because everyone knew him for, like, comedy roles. Oh, all kinds of people were considered for Batman. Got that written. Yeah, we have uh, Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Tom Selleck, Charlie Sheen, Kevin Costner, oh, Dennis Quaid, Pierce Brosnan, and Ray Liotta. I don't know who the last two are, but... I think Pierce Brosnan was one of the James Bonds. And Ray Liotta is one of those, like, mobster um, kind of actor guys who, like, you know, goes off on a dime. They should have just brought back the... TV, TV stars Adam West. <laughs> See, Ray Liotta was in the B movie. So that's that's how I know him. That's... Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Val Kilmer was also, you know, he came in in the third installment and I thought he I thought he was he, he did just fine. It's also it's not just how the actor plays Batman, but also how they play Bruce Wayne because those are it's mm-hmm. the duality of that role. Honest, I think they all they all did just fine. Like it's jarring that they keeps changing the role, but the um, overall direction of the subsequent movies changed so much, anyways, that it's like you just kind of accept, like, well, yeah, this is technically a sequel, but it feels more like a reboot within the same series. Well, that's what happens when movies like this switch hands throughout producers. Like before MCU became a thing, I mean, Spider Man was owned by Sony. And that's oh, why yeah. we had Tobey Maguire, and then we had Andrew Garfield, and now we have the other guy. And that's just, I think maybe that's probably part of the reason why it just kind of kept switching hands, and then there's different producers, different actors considered, shit like that, and that's why there's no consistency with a lot of these superhero movies, uh, because it took until, you know, the last 10 years for even for Marvel to start making their cinematic universe and now DC is just starting to figure that out right in the last few years so Mm, yeah not according to us I mean (laughs) they're trying they need to try harder (laughs) see from from my research into these movies like Burton you know he did the first one he didn't even really want to do the second one but he came back for that one and then he really didn't want to do the third one, like he, you know, he's, he's he's credited as a producer, but he's like he specifically wanted Joel Schumacher to direct, and um, Schumacher, his whole deal was making it more um, family friendly, because apparently, like a lot of kids were let out of Batman Returns just crying because it's it gets Aww. dark. 
You know, like, I guess it all boils down to toys and, you know, what, 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 what is okay for kids to see. And that's kind of how we got here. The increasing campiness that started in Batman Forever. Now, I would like to say about Mr. Freeze, like I said earlier, it took me a little bit to realize it really actually was Arnold Schwarzenegger and not just someone with a shitty Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> impersonation. His, his name is the first name to show up on the, 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 the opening title sequence. You, you have to keep in mind that I was also at work at this point when I was watching it, so I wasn't really watching the opening sequence screen. Naughty, naughty. <laughs> I know. That was the only time I had free time I had to watch this movie, man. Uh, I will. I will like. I would like to say though, he looks like a very muscular member of the Blue Man Group. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, huh. Once I saw his face, I was like, damn, that's definitely a look. (laughs) Arnold. <laughs> Apparently, that makeup took like that makeup and costume took like six hours to put on. I can believe it. Just looking at the way the costume looks and stuff, I can believe it took a while to put on. And the fact that you had to paint your face and then depend in the stage lighting is probably super hot, so they probably had to stop and like repaint it because it probably was sweating it off in that suit. And it's a it's a process, I'm sure. Oh, everyone! Yeah, I know, I know, I know. There's a lot of interesting uh, notes about like costume choice designs and stage setting throughout the movies. Um, I know that when Batman Returns, they um, the stage was kept at like 35 degrees constantly for the the live penguins they were using, and Aww. Michelle Pfeiffer was like just freezing her ass off in that little latex cat suit. Ar- Arnold is buried in there. You can just barely, you know, it's him because that's his voice, obviously. Like. Everyone can do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation, but, you know, no one does it quite like him. Yeah, but that's why I was like, okay, so is this a shitty impression or is this really him? I couldn't tell at first. It's like you, you turn on the radio sometimes and you hear a song and it's like, what is this off-brand whatever? And then you pull it up on Shazam and it's like, oh, that actually is the band I thought this was a knockoff of. Uh, I would like to say that I don't really care uh, that he his acting wasn't that great. Uh, I think that's kind of just on par with this movie. Uh, I will say that I've noticed throughout the movie, his facial expressions never really changed. And it was kind of weird. I mean, I wonder how much of that is because of uh, the makeup and the the rig he's got strapped to his head. He's got an LED light in his mouth. That could be. But it was just, it made it even funnier when he was, anytime he was talking, like, he just couldn't, if he was talking about his wife, like, he couldn't even, like, look sad. <laughs> like, like, every like, time that tear came out of his eye, I knew it was CGI. Yeah, I was oh, just, it was just... We can get into the CGI later. Don't, uh, no, let's not oh, open yeah. that can of worms yet. Not yet. Um, uh, before we talk about Chris O'Donnell as Dick Grayson slash Robin. What did we think about him? I uh, go ahead. Took me. I uh. I I kind of liked him. I mean, I didn't. We didn't. I didn't see enough of him to really figure out if I thought he was good or not. Uh, and for some reason, when he first popped up on screen, I thought it was Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with my brain, but like it's you know. I, just, I don't let know. Me, let me pull. I've got like all the alternate casting lists. For all of these, let me... Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon. Matt Damon was considered for Robin. 
Corey Haim, yeah. Corey Feldman, Mark Wahlberg, Michael Worth, Toby Stevens, Ewan McGregor, June Law, Alan Cumming, Christian Bale, Imagine. Um, and Scott Speedman. Imagine Mark Wahlberg back in the 80s with his still very thick, like, uh, when he's Marky where was Mark. he from? When he, when he had that thick accent from up north or wherever he was from before he, he Feels like got, New Jersey? Yeah, like the thick New Jersey accent as Robin. Like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm glad that they didn't choose him because that would have been... Actually, maybe it would have been more interesting if he was Robin. I don't know. <laughs> See, I, that's what I love to think about. I love to think about the alternate universes out there where these, one of, these people were all cast... Yeah. You know, in their own universe. So Robin, you know, he first appeared in the last movie, you know, mm-hmm. so this isn't the first Batman and Robin technically because the second, the latter half of Batman Forever was really Batman and Robin. Um, and in that movie, he kind of had his more signature costume. And this one, they changed it up. Obviously, these movies are infamous for um, the bat nipples and the, um, the bat cod <laughs> pieces. I will and... say, I love the amount, and this might be for later on, but I love the amount of crotch shots we see. <laughs> like, the beginning, it's literally, after the, the opening sequence, we we see Batman putting his, like, his suit on, and there's just, like, a close-up of his crotch area. And I was like, his, are we his, really starting the movie like this? <laughs> and his and his ass cheeks, his bat yeah. cheeks. Why? Why has everything got to be like that? <laughs> see, poor, poor Joel Schumacher got a lot of criticism for that because he, um, he was, he died last year. He was a gay man, and people thought, like, are you making the the men? Are you like extra androgenizing the suits? Because because you like that? And he was like, no, I, I base it off of like Greek statues that are anatomically correct. I didn't make, I didn't give them bad dicks and nipples because I'm gay. No. <laughs> now that makes me feel bad. That sucks, but. It's still kind of funny now. <laughs> it's like, oh, Roman statues, huh? Like, you were, you were going for the vaporwave aesthetic before it even existed. Your entire point was to sexualize? I would not use Greek statues. <laughs> because I mean, look at them, dude. Look at them. I mean, come on. <laughs> you, could, you could say that sexualization in superhero movies is a very common theme. Especially with, like, the, the female characters. Like, um... The female St- characters, for sure. Starting especially with um, Catwoman. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is just nothing but fetishization, I think. Um, and, like, so, every 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 critic's review of her acting is gross. Like, ew, creep. Well, that brings in the point. So if they were already fetishizing and sexualizing all of these female characters, then why are people uh, getting upset with all these cross shots in mm. weird costumes for the men? It's good. It's a good point. <laughs> They're hypocritical, much? Because uh, usually are gay the, the, men and ladies not allowed to look at men, uh, sexualized men superheroes, or is it just for the the women? Uh, just saying. It's good. It's a good point because usually the sculpted muscular physique is kind of more. Some would debate is kind of a male power fantasy thing, and it's not necessarily put there. For the women to gawk at, but if you if you make it that anatomically correct, it's like, hmm, that's <laughs> that might make you feel a little funny when you look at it if you're attracted to men in any capacity. <laughs> so, um, you definitely do see that in the next character, uh, Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy. She was very sexual, but I loved her in this. I really liked her. I liked the way she talked. I just, I just love her. <laughs> 
I, I just love her. Uh, I just love Uma Thurman. I don't know. Oh yeah. So I'm she's, very she's biased. a great actress. And and I imagine she had a lot of fun with this role. I think she was excited to take it because she likes the whole aesthetic of Poison Ivy as like um you know like a an evil seductress who just sort of has that sort of power. I think she found that role very alluring, and I, th- and I imagine she enjoyed playing it. And she did a good job too. I mean, it was fun watching her every time she was on screen. I was, uh, you know, very captivated. I I, I kept watching it. Yeah. Uh, compared to again, Wonder Woman eighty four with uh, the other with Barbara slash the cheetah. I could care less about her, but Poison Ivy really. I mean, it was good. I liked that. that you preferred that show. that transformation of a uh, blonde lady with glasses and her hair tied up into a um, a, a, a ragged seductress type because that's the same thing. It, it to me, it seems like Uma had more fun with this one than the other lady, Kristen. Kristen Wiig. Kristen Wiig. Yeah. Like I, it really like thinking look thinking about it now. It seemed like she was holding back a lot in her performance compared to Uma. Like Uma went and took it and was like, okay, I'm just gonna be funny because this is a camping movie and I'm just gonna, you know, crank Let it up loose to and have fun. Eleven and just I'm gonna have fun with it. Yeah. And I think she that's it was fun and I think that's. Most of the reason why I like this movie so much was because that her performance was fun. Now let's see here. Some other uh, actresses who were considered for this role were Demi Moore, Sharon Stone, and mm. Julia Roberts. I don't really know any of them from too much. I've heard some of these names before, but I couldn't like imagine. I couldn't put a face to them, so I can't imagine how they would have done the role differently. Julia Roberts. She. I know Julia Roberts. I don't know. She would have been a good Poison Ivy though. Demi Moore would have made a. A better Catwoman, yeah. Than Poison Ivy. Oh, a lot Ivy. of people were considered for Catwoman. That that one was like, people were basically fighting over it. That role. So then we also have uh, we've got Alicia Silverstone as Barbara Wilson slash Batgirl. It's kind of a depart from the tradition where I usually Batgirl is like Commissioner Gordon's daughter, but in here we have it as um, Alfred's niece, which doesn't really matter. That. Like I don't care. It's like she's there. She's Batgirl. Alicia wasn't in this for too long, though, so I can't really, I didn't have to, I didn't really have any notes on her because I didn't really see her enough, you know, so. She learned how to ride the motorcycle to play this role. Yeah, that's fucking cool. That's. And what I, what I thought was funny about that um, that motorcycle sequence is that, like, the guy running the whole show, it seemed like this this underground neon club of uh, motorcycle ra- street racers. Um, that was Coolio, I believe. Um, oh, I think Gang- Gangster's Paradise, that mm-hmm. song. And I think they wanted to expand on his character more in the um, the canceled sequel to this one, Batman Unchained. They were going to have him be the Scarecrow. I know. So we did see Dr. Jason Woodrow, played by John Glover, for a little bit before Poison Ivy killed him. And he really seemed like he was just having a blast up on screen. He was, there. He was just flailing around and twisting his dials and... If anyone wanted to know what the definition of a mad scientist was, I would look to his performance <laughs> because he did a good job of being insane. You know, and I love that set. Like, it's just, so, it's covered in test tubes filled with colorful liquids and, you know, pipes and wires that don't really seem to serve any purpose. But, like, you know, you buy it, like, oh, this is his whole setup. Like, I and there's just lot. green mist everywhere. Yeah. I have a 
lot to say about the the setup that when we get to it later. Yeah, we, the um, set design. Oh man, the set design is cool. Uh, and then we have who? Bane. Uh, we didn't really see too too much of him. But honestly, uh, I love Bane in this movie. Like he just he's just like the uh, the himbo. He doesn't talk. He just and Poison liked... Ivy presses his his himbo <laughs> button and he he smashes things. I liked when he they had finally got him uh, to wake up or whatever. The first thing he does is say, Bane, and it's just, just screwed, like, <laughs> growled his name. And I was like, oh, okay, Rocky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, he just, he, he's like, he's a tool, he's a, um, a tool more than a character. Like, Poison, I like how the dynamic that Poison Ivy and him have where she kind of just, like, uses him as, like, the muscle machine. Like, oh, go, go hit, go smash this thing for me, dear. Now this one, it was a bit of a shock to me. I don't because when I remember being introduced to Bane, well, I did watch this movie when I was a kid, but obviously I don't, I don't remember it. But um, I remember watching The Dark Knight Rises, and Bane was in that one, and that Bane compared to this Bane is very intelligent, <laughs> and I was like, oh, interesting. But also, I'm guessing because Bane was probably like. A bad guy for a while now he probably I don't know I mean obviously like they're not none of these movies are going to be cohesive right because they're all made by different studios so I'm just like hmm it's, it's interesting to think about though you know you see different interpretations of different villains yeah Vivica A. Fox was Mr. Freeze right he she was working Mr. Freeze's sexy assistant who flirts with him constantly. He is unresponsive as he's still in love with his wife. She was on screen for like five seconds. Yeah, which made me sad because I wanted to see more of her. She seemed cool. <laughs> and um, of course, we still have Alfred and Commissioner Gordon. They're in every iteration of Batman. And these are these actors are in all four of this series. They're like the common players. Um, but there's really nothing remarkable to say. There's nothing really remarkable to say about either of their performances. They're basically the same as they've been all throughout. You know, Alfred is Alfred. He's he's there. He's sick in this one. Barbara's motivations were she wanted to bring Alfred back with her um, because she was he was sick and she didn't think that he should be treated like a slave or something. She said some sort of. There was some sort of di- exchange between her and uh, Robin where they were talking about how she wants to take him away from here and have him stop being treated like a housemaid or whatever, even though, like, Robin was like, oh, no, we treat him like family. And she's like, yeah, but he cleans up after you. And that's when we find out that he's actually sick uh, with, what is that disease that he had in the movie? McGregor's um, syndrome. McGregor's syndrome, Same yeah. thing that Freeze's wife had, but, like, he's got stage one. She has, like, stage four, and that's why she has to be frozen so she doesn't die. But he, he's got the milder version of it that, I guess, at his advanced age is still going to kill him, which is why well, yeah. they need the cure, which motivates our, our protagonists here and gives Freeze his redemption arc. Uh, so I think we should move on with dialogue. Uh, I know oh, you talked Lord. a little bit about the puns. <laughs> Would you like to, to go more into that? <laughs> sure. Um, like, There's right out lot. the gate with this movie, like, the first line in this movie is like, uh, I want a car. Chicks dig the car, which I think is a callback to um, the last movie. Um, but it's like right out the gate, it's quips. And then it's more quips about, I'll cancel the pizzas, sir. Like, 
It's just it's quip, 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 quip. This was pre-MCU. Like, you think the MCU is bad about, you know, rolling out quips one after another at the expense of the narrative, narrative flow. Like, this was just nonstop, in-your-face quips. Great Scott, Batman. Yeah, it's like... literally the, the a continuation of the Adam West TV series. And they, they kind of started reaching that campiness in um, Batman Forever. But did you ever feel like the um, it became painful? Towards the end, yeah. I was just like, I'm over it. Stop. Can we just have some normal dialogue where they don't have to do these quips and say all this shit? Like, it's annoying. Like, there's the more serious scenes. There's a, there's that whole subplot about um, Alfred dying. And though th- those obviously are not quip-laden, and those, but those are the more slow and boring scenes. So it's like your choices with the scenery in this movie are the slower, more boring, but more toned down and serious. You can, you can actually kind of get invested in what's going on versus yeah. the high-action, high-cartoon factor sequences where the dialogue is just one-liner one-liner, one-liner, ridiculous, contrived uh, sequences of events, more one-liners. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, like, that's really all I can say about the dialogue, is that it's just... It's puns, one-liners, quips galore, and there's just a lot of it. And it's not too much you can really dissect or analyze... Beyond, yeah, they did this too much and they should have made some actual regular dialogue, but I digress. Because I, like, I, like we were saying earlier, like, I really wish I could have taken Freeze's character a little more seriously, but, the, but, but when all he's saying are ice puns, it's like you just roll your eyes every time he talks. My favorites, personally, were Stay Cool, Bird Boy, and also Do You Freeze, Batman? <laughs> <laughs> They just, they start, at that point, it started to not make any sense. And I was like, okay, we get it. You have to throw in something about being cold, but it doesn't make any sense to stop. It's like a few of those would have been fine, as long as he had some other kind of dialogue type going on. But it was really, it was just that. Like, every time he's on screen, you can reliably assume, okay, he's going to make another cheesy joke. Because, like, imagine being friends with somebody who has this one defining personality trait and makes nothing but puns about that trait. <laughs> like, that would be fucking awful. And I, you wouldn't want to be around that person ever again. That's how I feel when I watch this movie. Some Like, when I was watching this movie, you know? Like, with some of these people, like Mr. Freeze, I was just like, okay. Kind of how Poison Ivy is basically all she does is just blow her dust in people's faces. I really wish we had seen more of her manipulating plants, but well, that, that kind of gets into cooler. how the CGI is so bad. But other than that, there's like there's the structure of the story. I'd Does say it makes mostly sense? makes sense. Yeah, I think it works. It makes sense with uh, in the this uh, world of Batman and Robin. Um, I wouldn't say it's particularly unique, though. I think it's pretty generic with uh, you know other kind of campy, rompy-type superhero movies. Um, What did you think overall of the structure? I think it worked fine for what it had become, you know? Like, this feels like the natural direction that the series was taking. It's like, it it wouldn't make sense if you tried to um, frame it in the context of, like, the the tone of the first two movies, you know? Like, this is 
a completely different thing. It has evolved into something else. And it's it's its own thing, you know, and it has its own right to exist and its own... Uh, and going on to the theme, now I don't think there really was a theme. Uh, not every movie has to have a theme or like a thematic element to it. And especially when it comes to campy movies like this, uh, but that's just my opinion. Did you kind of, is there any anything that you saw that you thought was could be a theme in this movie? No, not really. And there had been themes in previous entries, um, particularly about like the duality of man, like the duality of Bruce Wayne and Batman, his alter ego. Um, you know, the duality of like the villains and where they come from. I think that there used to be more themes of like um, dealing with grief. I think if they had expanded more on Alfred's uh, plot where he was sick, that could have been made into a thematic uh, structure as far as like you need to, you know, life is short or you need to spend time with people, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's... Something along those lines. Um, I, nothing comes to mind right now, but if they just expanded on that, because I know, like like I had said earlier, Alicia Silverstone was like, well, I want to take Alfred back with me because he's such a good guy and he shouldn't be working if he's sick and da-da-da. And if they just had expanded more on his storyline, I'm sure there could have been, like, a theme within that. But, yeah, overall, I didn't really see any sort of theme. Yeah, with Alfred's story, there was, it, it felt like they were establishing some plot lines that could have been expanded upon later. Like his mm-hmm. his relative that travels around all the time that he's trying to send this information to. That felt like something that was going to get talked about. More, that would be like become relevant in like the canceled sequel. Felt like some seeds had been laid for... Yeah, that's the other thing, too, now that you're, you're saying that they were going to make a sequel it makes sense that some of the stuff was laid out and then never really uh brought back up again because it very well could have been brought up in the sequel they i really do feel like this one it really felt like it was meant to segue into a sequel like um the ending shot where they've got batman robin and batgirl running towards the camera kind of in this um half lighting you know that's Mm -hmm. a callback to how batman forever ended with batman and robin running at the screen in the exact same way so it's like, it's like we, ne- we never got the fifth installment. We never got Batman and Robin and Batgirl. Yeah, so we are going to take a quick break so you can hear from our amazing sponsor. Are you a costume villain trying to make an impact in the fast-paced city of Gotham? Are you struggling to achieve your diabolical schemes on your own? Look no further than Gotham Goon Supply for all your henchmen hiring needs. We take the most disenfranchised and vulnerable individuals out of the school to Arkham pipeline and subject them to mind-numbing superliminal messaging, guaranteeing their total obedience in your fight against the Dark Knight. We even outfit them to match your style. Whether your theme is circus performers, punctuation marks, or the duality of man, we've got the resources to make you the fiercest face in the rogues gallery. Just ask these satisfied customers. You are my number one strategic resource. These guys are cool. Don't give them the cold shoulder. Riddle me this? Where have you guys been all my life? Don't delay. Give us a call today. Our henchmen are so excited to start running amok with you. They can't even... Look at that. We've got a caller on line one. Hello? Hi there. What have you got in a big dumb beefcake? 
Oh, so sorry, man. But until we get our next shipment of Venom, the Himbo Machine is currently out of order. Oh, Might I interest you in a smaller model? Will you wear cat ears? Absolutely. Wonderful. And there you have it, folks. Another satisfied customer. Call within the next 15 minutes and we'll throw in free vehicle detailing so Batman always knows which cars to avoid. With every order of 10 or more henchmen, you get a villainous pet absolutely free. Couldn't your hideout use some rocket-clad penguins or carnivorous plants? I know mine could. <laughs> so what are you waiting for? Give us a call today and jumpstart your career as Gotham's number one menace. Welcome back, and now we're into the second half of our analysis. We're kind of going to get more into the uh, production side of things. The technical, the lighting, the direction, the sound. Um, so let's go ahead and get started with the special effects. How did you feel about the special effects of this movie? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to harp on it too much, because it, it was a, a movie made in 97, Um but it was bad. I mean, not good, but not <laughs> awfully terrible, though. You know, like the what the one thing that I remember that stuck out to me was when Poison Ivy was like singing or tr getting those plants to come up. That yes. was pretty funny to look at. I was like, like though, that looked like some PlayStation Two graphics right there. Like, is this is this claymation? Like, what is going on here? It's kind of weird. And I can imagine, especially that up on, like, a big movie screen, like, you could see right through it. Like, I could see through it on my TV, so I can't imagine yeah. seeing that all blown up. Like, uh, did anyone... Yeah, that would look so awful. Maybe at the time it looked pretty good, but... And, you know, we, we have to be forgiving because it was all that time ago. Like, when we tear apart a movie that came out last year, then, oh, by all means, it's like, hey, this should look better by now. We've seen better, so why does it not look better? Yeah, um, when it comes to dissecting movies, especially bad movies from, you know, a long time ago or low-budget movies that came out fairly recently, it is uh, low-hanging fruit to harp on the uh, the special effects. Not that we shouldn't talk about it, but that is just... Just to remember where Batman has been. Do you, Were there... Uh, I, I couldn't really tell because, again, I was watching this on my phone... Uh, would you consider any of the effects practical effects or just specifically, you know, like CGI or whatever it was at that time that they had uh, access to? You know, I think most of it was just practical effects, lighting, costumes. Really, the only thing I specifically remember that I knew for a fact was uh, computer-generated were those plants growing out of the dirt in the um, Turkish bathhouse. Mm -hmm. Um that's it. Like I imagine, I'm sure other things were uh, CG added, but um, I think most of it was just clever camera work, costumes, and props. I think the and makeup, when, a lot of makeup. When Robin got frozen, I think that was CGI. Probably, but I also that like one. <laughs> like when Batman picked up Robin like in one piece and put him in hot water. I imagine that felt like it was a real prop. Like where is this prop? This. Mm -hmm. This makeup of um, Chris O'Donnell frozen in ice. Where, where, is this in some warehouse somewhere? Does a collector own it in his living room? That's interesting, yeah. I don't know. I it just, could have been CGI. I just like the idea of practical effects because there's oh, yeah. so much you can do with it. And it doesn't 
I can't say it doesn't cost as much money as it would to do, like, CGI or whatever, but, oh, man, it's, I give it a lot more credit when it comes to stuff like that, just because, like, I just think you have to be really uh, ingenuitive and creative with practical effects, and it's always fun to see those. That's why it's always kind of fun to revisit older movies, because you see that more. Mm-hmm. More often used in them. You don't see it quite as much nowadays unless it's part of the director's vision for the movie to be like a return to form. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to bring it back to the classic basics. Like like horror directors, when they try to do a comeback, it's like, yeah, I'm doing um, practical effects again, like back in the old days, like you remember. I think they should they should start doing more practical effects again because it looks... It might not look better, but... I think it might look better. <laughs> I mean, when, when you're looking at a real thing that exists and performed in front of a camera, you know, that's that's always more convincing. It's like miniatures always look more real than CG rendered because it's like it's a real object. It's a smaller object, but it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that actually throughout the series, like particularly in the Burton-directed first two movies. He loves do- Burton loves doing miniatures. So like, um, like the abandoned zoo set and... Batman Returns, that's a miniature. Um, and I think certain other shots of, of Gotham City are just, you know, built up miniature models that the camera will zoom through in a specific way when the, and it's lit in a specific way so you can't quite tell it's tiny. Yeah. But that always impresses me, you know. So how did you feel about the color in this movie? I think for me, the color would go a lot with uh, the set designs. Because it was very colorful, and I really liked it. I liked the color. Uh, and I, 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 that could be, again, because I just remember watching this with my brothers, and I remember just watching like a lot of colorful movies uh, in my younger years. Uh, I do particularly... The two sets that I liked the most with the, the coloring was when we were in the lab, the green oh, yeah. lighting. That was great. Uh, that one made me think of that Goosebumps episode, Don't Go in the Basement, because it was lit that same kind of way, and it was also about a herbologist. Um, and I then remember the, that uh, book. The party scene, the party scene was really cool. I like the lighting for that one. Uh, what did you think about Oh, that? yeah, I, I also wanted to mention the laboratory. Uh, I was saying earlier, I love how they... Uh, really fill it just chock full of like Erlenmeyer flasks and test tubes just full of rainbow colored liquids you know that they're steaming and smoking and there's fires underneath some of them that are bubbling and, you know and it does not serving any apparent purpose but like they just did a really good job of building a like um, a comic fantasy sci- mad scientist's lab and it I thought really that was did. very colorful yeah. and fun and I also really love the um, the Turkish bathhouse mm. um that Ivy turns into her little lair. You know, there's a lot of fun, colorful graffiti. And like the previous, that, that gang there, they were all like neon lit. There was more of them in the, cool. in, there yeah. was more of them in Batman Forever. Um, mm-hmm. They were kind of brought back from that. Um, and I think part of the whole vision of three and four was to depart from the dark grittiness of Burton's movies which use a lot of black and gray and rusty brown. And um, the, the, the whole aesthetic of Gotham is very, like, oppressive. And it's based on, like, fascist architecture and 
Uh, it's based on a combination of architecture types. It's meant to feel just really oppressive and dismal and hopeless. But with these, with three and four, they wanted to make it more bright and optimistic. So they incorporated more neon colors uh, into the aesthetic of Gotham. They still kind of maintain like the, the giant statues everywhere. I definitely so. agree with that. Um, and I, I mean, just that... wish that we would have more movies, superhero movies that look like that. I don't know. I know it wouldn't look make like sense which one? now. Like, like Batman and Robin. Like just all colorful and neon and fun. And I know it's not going to work because... You know, the the cinematic universes for both DC and, and Marvel, even though they are comedic, it's not, like, campy, you know. I do... The only thing was all the weird close-up shots uh, <laughs> with Batman getting dressed and then Batman taking out his Bat Visa card. Oh, that was... <laughs> I love that. The, the, bat, the Bat card. <laughs> I was like, okay... Now I get it. Now I get what they're going for with this movie. I mean, I got it. Like, the moment that I see Batman and Robin click their heels together and ice skate blades come out of their boots, that set the whole tone of the movie for me. Like, oh, God, this is a cartoon. Which really is what it's supposed to be about, the gadgets and just the, the, the funness of it. Some would argue that, like, the Nolan trilogy takes Batman too seriously. You know, when Batman is supposed to be kind of fun... One editing tick that I caught was um, there's a scene where Robin is emerging from a body of water in Poison Ivy's um, cavern, and you can tell that it's played forward and then reversed. He comes out, and then it's like, it, it goes backwards, and he goes back in the water. I caught that, too, and I was just about to bring that up. I was like, so I'm not the only one who saw that. Okay. Oh, no. That was kind of weird. I was like, why did they reverse it? Like, that felt like I was felt like I was watching an old school YouTube poop. I thought I could just fix it by going in reverse, but turns out it's very noticeable. It's like was that a mistake or was that to cover up an even bigger mistake? Like what were you trying to fix by doing that? Did you think audiences would have noticed that? My thing, my thought is is that maybe they just didn't get another take or maybe the rest of the takes were bad of him like emerging and going back under. And so they just were like, oh, we'll just reverse it. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not because it's obvious that it was reversed. (laughs) Yeah. The action sequences, like, it's all very much shot to feel like a cartoon. And that's what they were deliberately trying to do. And so I think if that's what they were going for, then they succeeded. Yeah. I don't don't have much to say about the editing just because I think, like, it, 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 it was on par for the, what they were going for. I can't. There's nothing to really analyze for me. Um, so let's talk about the sound. What did you think of the Foley, the score, all of that stuff? Um, you know, the score by this point has distanced itself from, like, the Danny Elfman original score for, like, um, the first two movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they got they brought on an entirely different composer who um, worked in a lot more pop and, um, like, rock. I think their vision for this one... I forget if it was this one or Batman Forever, but their vision was to create a Batman for the MTV generation. So there's a lot more of a variety of sounds uh, worked into it. And uh, I think it it works with um, what they were trying to create. It has aged quite a lot. Um, like, you know, it feels aggressively late 90s. Like, you ever just 
you ever watching a movie from the 90s or the 2000s and you're like, like this is aggressively of its era? Like if I'm watching oh, yeah. a 2000s movie and it's got a lot of Baja music in it and reggae and R&B, like, oh, this is so aggressively 2000s. It's it's very cartoony. Like I, I, we keep saying that, but that's because it's true in every respect to what they were doing. It's like there's a lot of slide whistles and, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of these silly, silly noises. And it's like it. it what what stopped them from just putting um, like the wham bam biff title cards to go with them? That almost would have been a, like the '60s Batman. That almost they were basically there. And that, and that I I think also just kind of highlights the difference between the action sequences, which are full blown cartoon, versus like the more grounded sequences that take place in Wayne Manor. The whole subplot with Alfred. There's nothing much interesting going on there. Yeah, they really put a lot of effort into those, like, uh, scenes, like, set designs, costumes, I mean, and again, that, like you were saying earlier, it's more about the villains than it is about Batman and them, because even with their, the villains, like, lairs and their costume, it's so much more fun than Batman and Robins, you know? Yeah. Um, that kind of brings us into like the cinematography of it. That, that's that's kind of it's kind of what we're uh, bleeding into here. Um, how that, that's kind of my main note about all the cinematography is that the the stark contrast between these two types of scenes, where it's yeah. like we have our grounded reality, realistic reality going on in Wayne Manor, and then we enter like the the full blown neon lit cartoon world outside in Gotham City where. The Batmobile is driving along in the arm of a colossal statue, and Mister Freeze is crashing his truck into the side of a building. Like, there, like there's a there, there's a stark contrast, is what I'm saying. I agree, um, and a lot of the cinematography does have a lot to do with the editing to me. Uh, so I don't really have too too much to say about that. But yeah, I mean it's very on par with the comic esque comic book esque campy. Kind of thing, and I'm sure whoever's listening is getting annoyed by us reiterating it, but it's true. Just watch the movie, and you'll <laughs> see exactly what we're talking about. And I mean, that's that's really all I could say about the directing, too. Um, all I know is about Schumacher's approach to this. Like I mentioned earlier, he told everyone before, but like, remember, folks, this is a cartoon, and especially watching like. Like Uma Thurman's performance, I especially felt like she was told that before every take. Like she, she, I, I really feel like she acts as though she's trying to be in a cartoon. Oh yeah, I mean, and that's why, like, with acting, it all because I mean we all technically already covered a lot of this stuff in the first portion. Uh, it's just that we all know where it was going, and it all kind of like feeds into one another. Uh, and again, I'm I, I'm bringing up. WW84 because it was a recent episode uh, that we talked about but it's a stark contrast between the two where this one knew where it was going right like in the in the episode with uh, over that movie I said if one thing is off then everything else is going to become off right this one it is on target with everything it might not be <laughs> the best movie but it definitely knows what it's trying to be, and it gets there. Whereas the other movie doesn't know where it's tr- what it's trying to do, who it wants to be. 
and I think this is a good example of like you you stick to it you you work with other people and you're all on a everything's cohesive and you're all on the same page it's gonna make a more fundamentally uh, structured tone movie you know um, yeah I can definitely that's... say that it's it's consistent in its delivery of what it is you know mm-hmm. and it doesn't take itself too seriously it knows it knows it's probably not a good movie <laughs> but it's you know and, and that's what I like about it like they don't try to take it too seriously they don't try to be like haha or or purposely try well I mean the puns were a bit too much but <laughs> everything else I mean they, they didn't really take themselves seriously they knew what they were making everyone knew and I think the only reason people are mad about what it is is that it's in connection to the series up until now. Like I think if it had been its own standalone Batman movie, just like completely, re- you know, completely cast of different actors, none of whom had been in like any of the Tim Burton Batman movies, uh, if it had just been like kind of its own reboot from like a totally different studio, I think it would have been. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think as many people would have been mad about it, you know. It would have just been viewed as a return yeah. to form with the '60s campiness, and uh, but I think it'd be just because it was attached to that same series, you know, you can analyze how it uh, changed, and people were just upset that it had changed, you know. So they might have had different expectations going into the theaters. Uh, now I did add in for me, I did add in a couple notes. I made my own little portion about like makeup, costume, etc. Uh, I did want to point out one thing I thought was really cool was when we were seeing the police station uh, and that dude was in his office, we saw the Riddler's suit hanging up on the wall. And I thought that was interesting because um, that for me, I thought like maybe they were hinting at an upcoming cameo uh, in a future movie about the Riddler or whatever. Well, Riddler was in Batman Forever. Like, that was his exact costume used there. And I think originally they wanted to actually have Jim Carrey be in a cell watching um, Freeze and Ivy escape. Um, but I don't. I think he had a scheduling conflict and wasn't able to do it. And I, I know that Tommy Lee Jones, as Two-Face, he didn't even like playing that part at all. So there was no way they were ever going to get him back in, even just as a cameo. But yeah, I just thought that was kind of cool. It was a cool nod to like the other uh, Batman villains. Um, and like I said, all of the set designs were really fun to look at. Very festive, colorful. Uh, and that's all I had for that. Um, you know, like, you know, talking about going back to the Riddler and Sufi's, I felt like they had better chemistry as a, a as a um, evil villain duo in Batman Forever than Ivy and Freeze had. Like, I... I just couldn't buy them working together as much. They they got along and sort of worked, but um, it just never felt as good as the previous movie had felt. Like, I feel like, um, like if you enjoy the campiness of this movie, then you should also watch Batman Forever because it also has that, but in certain regards, it's done a little bit better and with a little more nuance so that it's mm-hmm. not as aggressively in your face cheesy. Yeah. It's, wor- it's worth a watch. If I were to put these two villains on a uh, time, uh, what it, uh, that thing, you know, that meme where it's like good, lawful good, whatever, I would say, to me personally, Mr. Freeze is lawful evil. 
and Poison Ivy is chaotic evil. Yeah. And so because of that, it makes kind of no sense that they would pair up together. Like it would make more, it would make sense for like Mr. Freeze to pair up with like some thematically appropriate um, other villain like Penguin, like Freeze and Penguin. That would make sense. And by extension, Catwoman and Ivy working together would also make more sense. And that probably would have felt like I imagine they would have had better chemistry together. Not necessarily Pfeiffer's Catwoman and Thurman's um, Poison Ivy, but like just those two characters in general. Yeah, I I I I think it would have been more fun to see. A take, like a campy take on Catwoman interacting with the campy take on Poison Ivy. This movie had like an interesting, it almost had like this anti-environmentalism um, under thread to it. Because like, you know, Ivy is kind of treated like a lunatic for wanting to help the environment. And she's almost kind of portrayed as like an eco-terrorist or an eco-fascist. Mm-hmm. Like she's willing to let millions of people die in the name of mother earth and it just feels a bit like a smear on the whole concept of taking environmentalism seriously you know where batman very calmly well bruce wayne very calmly explains like oh well without diesel energy millions of people will die and she's like oh that's a perfectly perfectly valid sacrifice for the greater good and it it just kind of treats treats it like a joke and i i don't know how i felt about it like i don't i i I was alive at the time. I was a tiny, tiny child. So I don't know what the, um, I don't know how people felt about the whole concept of climate change and global warming in the late 90s. If it was a concept that was taken seriously then, it very much isn't taken seriously now by a lot of people. So I, I'd like to know more about that, the context of it. Um, <clears throat> what else is I going to say? Oh, and also there was, um, there's a line where Batgirl is like, she tells, she says, I am Batgirl to Batman. And he's like, well, that's not very PC. What about uh, Batwoman or Batperson? Like, that was not like PC. <laughs> There's a joke about political correctness. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That's another thing I liked. I would have liked to have known <clears throat> more about the context of at the time of like how did was the con- was political correctness kind of a new concept? When did people start using that term? And why did people feel like it needed to be uh, used in the script? That was something that I thought was kind of weird when he says, don't you think that's a little, that's not PC or whatever? That is something that I remember hearing a lot later in, like, the late 2010s, right? Yeah. Or early 2010s, I guess I would say. Uh, But obviously, this movie came out the year I was born. Uh, so there probably was some sort of discussion about political correctness, maybe not as much as there was as there is now. Uh, but it was still kind of a weird phrase to throw around. Like, it, was it was I supposed to laugh at that? I don't, right. I don't know. Like, it wasn't funny. <laughs> like, um, I mean, maybe to me it feels like people only started talking about it in the 2010s because that's about when I started using the internet. Um, I'm sure people have been having these conversations in other places for decades. Um, but the terminology just changes. Um, but yeah, that's that's just why I, I, I bring up like it, it would have been interesting. Sometimes I think it would have been fun to have been there when it was released. Like if I could time travel, like, you know, just go to that year and kind of really experience the climate surrounding its release, the the marketing, the merchandising, <laughs> what 
how did people feel about it when it was fresh off the press? Um, and how long did it kind of stick in people's minds before it just became a silly anomaly that people laugh at nowadays that, that, that we decide to dig up and um, talk about on our podcast where we talk about bad movies. Yeah. Um, you know, I particularly remember in my research of all the movies, I remember the first movie, like it was like the summer it was released, like it was everywhere. Like people were scratching the Batman logo onto their foreheads because it was just that big of a phenomenon um, when that came out. And I meant like I would have I would have loved to have been there. Like that was just all anyone was talking about was just Batman. They're making a big, serious, gritty adaptation of Batman. And people didn't quite know what to expect because, you know, it's like it's going to be Michael Keaton. He's a comedy actor. Uh, you know, we've, we've got Jack Nicholson as a Joker. Everyone was everyone was confident about that from the start. Um. <clears throat> I definitely, definitely see Jack Nicholson as a good Joker. Like, he was a good Joker. There's just something about his acting style that made sense for that role. Um, even with the shot, I know, like. The Shining movie is very different compared to the book, right? And oh, yeah. There's a, there's a reason that Stephen King hates uh, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation. <laughs> it's, not even any, it's not even close to, like, the source material. But in a way, his character was a bit campy, and, and he was a, a lunatic, and it made sense for him to be the Joker. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think when it comes to certain movies... It's more fun to look at what was going on in that time frame, the culture surrounding it, the hype surrounding it. That is so much more interesting than the movie itself. And, um, and that makes me imagine like, okay, what movies have I been alive for that I have memory of that were a phenomenon uh, at the time? I recall Avatar was an enormous phenomenon at the time when it came out. And, I mean, like, mm-hmm. no one really talks about it. I mean, okay, okay, quote-unquote, nobody talks about it anymore. I mean, like, they're going to roll out four sequels to it, and there's, like, a whole theme park for but it. Nobody Disney World, wants but it. that was a whole phenomenon at the time, and everyone was like, have you seen Avatar yet? You've got to see Avatar. All right, so one of the songs recorded for the film, The End is the Beginning is the End by the Smashing Pumpkins, won a Grammy Award for the Best Hard Rock Performance at the 40th Annual Grammy Awards. Um, Ed Harris, Anthony Hopkins, and Patrick Stewart were considered for the role of Mr. Freeze. I can't imagine Patrick Stewart as Mr. Freeze. Me neither. Um, The script was rewritten to accommodate Schwarzenegger's casting. Uh, Schumacher decided that Mr. Freeze must be big and strong like he was chiseled out of a glacier. Schwarzenegger was paid a $25 million salary for the role, while his prosthetic makeup and wardrobe took six hours to apply each day. I mentioned this earlier. Demi Moore, Sharon Stone, and Julia Roberts were considered for the role of uh, Poison Ivy. Thurman took the role because she liked the femme fatale characterization of Poison Ivy. On August 18, 1997, two months after the film's release, Robert Swenson, the actor who played Bane, died of heart failure in Los Angeles. He was a um, professional wrestler. And he, he, like, he, when you see pictures of him, he really just he looks like that. He's just this huge, muscular dude. He I has mean, like, that makes sense. He has he no neck. His neck is buried in muscles. Um, let's see. Schumacher admitted he had difficulty working with Kilmer on Forever, and that's why he didn't come back in this one. Uh, apart from him wanting to be in the film The Saint, um, Schumacher's quote is saying, he sort of quit, and we sort of fired him. Yeah. Alicia Silverstone was the only choice for the role of Batgirl. She wasn't even an actress. They just gave her that part for Clueless. 
some the woman who was directing Clueless had seen her uh, in a music video for I want to say Van Halen, but I could be wrong. One of those bands, <laughs> and then she was like, "You're perfect. You need to be our lead," <laughs> and that's how it started. <laughs> huh. All right, so um, when comparing work on Batman Forever, Chris O'Donnell, who was Robin, explained, it just felt like everything got a little soft the second time. On Batman Forever, I felt like I was making a movie. The second time, I felt like I was making a kid's toy commercial. Feeding into that, according to John Glover, who played Dr. Jason Woodrew, Joel Schumacher would sit on a crane with a megaphone and yell before each take, Remember everyone, this is a cartoon. It was hard to act because that kind of set the tone for the film. Uh, production designer Barbara Ling admitted her influence for the Gotham City design came from neon-ridden Tokyo and the Machine Age. Gotham is like a world's fair on ecstasy. Chris O'Donnell said that despite hanging out with Schwarzenegger a lot off set and during promotion for the film, they never worked a single day together on set. Uh, this was achieved with stand-ins when one of the actors was not available. So anytime you see, you appear, you think you see Robin and Freeze in the same shot, like one of them is a body double. Like they, they were never on set in costume on the same day. The studio reportedly included toy companies in pre-production meetings, including the design and concept art and character illustrations. Director Joel Schumacher criticized Warner Bros. strategy of Batman and Robin as being overtly toyetic. And I feel like you can see that on the screen, like with Bane and the button on his chest. Like that to me felt like a play feature put right up on the screen like i can just see how the bane action figures at spawn had the exact same button that the kid could press mm. and uh poison ivy has a line which is like every single poison ivy action figure comes with the bane it's like you're just going for the embedded toy commercial right there on screen and then the canceled sequel titled batman unchained um the script had scarecrow as the main villain through the use of his fear toxin, he resurrects the Joker as a hallucination in Batman's mind. Harley Quinn appeared as a supporting character written as the Joker's daughter. Uh, Clooney, yeah. O'Donnell, Silverstone, and Coolio were set to reprise the roles of Batman, Robin, Batgirl, and Scarecrow. It was hoped that the villains from previous films would make cameo appearances in the hallucinations caused by Scarecrow, culminating with Jack Nicholson reprising the role as the Joker. Following the poor critical and financial reception of Batman and Robin, Clooney vowed never to reprise his role. And uh, that's all I've got. Although I'm sure there's there's a ton more. That's just what my research garnered. Well, that's a lot of interesting facts, that's for sure. Um, overall, what do you think overall about this movie? How do you feel about it? Um, it's a great get-together-with-your-friends-and-make-fun-of-it kind of movie. It's great for a rainy day. It's... It's a lot of fun. Like it's not a serious Batman movie. That it is not the Dark Knight. It's. I recommend it if you're bored and you can watch it for free somewhere. Like don't pay money to watch this by any stretch of the imagination, please. Mm. Overall, I liked it. It was a fun movie, campy, funny. I mean, there's. Yeah, it's not a great movie, but you know, I'm a staunch believer in you don't have to only watch movies that are like quote-unquote cinematic masterpieces. It's okay to watch a movie that's not that great and like that movie and have that be one of your favorite movies or, or whatever, you know? Like, like, who cares? Watch whatever you want, like whatever you want. Um, I think my overall rating for this would be a 4 out of 5 crotch so uh, shots, but that's me. Yeah, I'd give it like 3.5 out of 5 back credit cards. 
<laughs> Bat visas. <laughs> All right. Uh, is there anything else that we want to say before we close up this episode? No, that just about does it. Uh, you know, we'll see you next week. And uh, what are we? What are we talking about next week? Do we know? I have no idea. We haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a surprise, folks. All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching or listening. I should say. Sorry, guys. Yeah, there's nothing uh, to watch. <laughs> There could be one day. Uh, But, you guys, uh, make sure that you are following us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, etc. Follow us on our socials at SpaghettiFigPod, at SpaghettiFictionPod, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.